Good morning. Good morning. If you have a Bible um, with you or on your phone or someone next to you has a Bible, ask them to turn to the Gospel of Luke chapter 18. Uh, Luke 18 verses 9 through 14. We're looking at one of Jesus' most famous parables today. Um, In a lot of ways, this is a really simple, straightforward parable. And this is a really simple, straightforward uh, message. There are no really bells or whistles. Um, (laughs) but, um, But if you're interested in what Christianity is all about. Maybe you're kind of checking it out. You're wondering what this gospel is that you always hear us and others talking about. This gets at the heart of that. If you've been a believer as long as you can remember and you um, are curious about what it looks like to go deeper in understanding what the gospel means in your life today, this passage is for you. Um, what's going on real quick in this passage? So Jesus, this is a section in Luke where he's been teaching about the kingdom of God and he's slowly working his way up toward Jerusalem. Jerusalem sets up up on the hill and then at the center of Jerusalem is up on the higher on the mount is uh, the temple itself, the center of God's presence with his people. And so in this section, Jesus is talking about um, what, are the, what are the kinds of prayers that God hears. And more specifically in this passage, who is it? What are the kinds of people that God actually accepts? That's the question that Jesus proposes and answers in this uh, famous story they told. And there's a really beautiful symmetry to the story. Two guys go up to the temple, they do their thing, they come back down again. And yet there's a surprising verdict that Jesus pronounces uh, at the end. Let me read for us Luke chapter 18, verses 9 through 14. He also told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. Two men went up into the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed thus, God, I thank you that I am not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. But the tax collector, standing far off, would not even lift up his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and the one who humbles himself will be exalted. This is God's word. Lord, as we come to your word, um, we pray that you would speak for your servants here. In Jesus' name, amen. You know, the topic of, um, of humility is, is kind of tricky. And this is, this is nothing new. There are a zillion jokes, and there are even more preacher jokes about humility. Um, I'll only give you one. Um, but uh, humility is tricky. You know, just when you think, you know, man, you know, I'm, being really, I'm being really humble right now. Yeah, at that moment, you stop being humble. Here's the, here's the corny preacher joke. Um, you probably heard the story of a church uh, that gave their pastor a plaque to, to recognize him, honor him for his humility. But then they took it away when he hung it up in his office. So, so there you go. Um, what, 
But yeah, pride is tricky. And what I'd like us to see, um, there's a simple kind of three-part structure to this parable and a simple three-point um, to this sermon. We're going to look, first of all, at pride. And then we're going to look at what humble repentance is actually all about. And finally, we'll see God's verdict at the end. And now we're going to spend most of our time um, on the first one, on pride. Because that's, that's where we struggle, right? And pride. Because the thing about pride is it's always easier to see in someone else than it is to see in ourselves, isn't it? That's just the nature of sin itself, and especially it's the nature of pride, because pride, it goes down deep. It's, it's for good reason that medieval Christians, when they put together um, various church fathers and they kind of perfected this list that we now know as the seven deadly sins, um, in case you're wondering, that's actually not in the Bible, but it's, it's a great summary of seven kind of key temptations that we're all going to struggle with in different ways. But when they put that together, pride is right there at the top. Pride is number one on the list. And that's for good reason, because it's, it's seen as the chief sin, as the root sin underneath all the other sins. All the other ones kind of, in a way, spring up from that one uh, weed, that one root. Think about other, other areas where, where we struggle with sin. There's always, there's always some element of pride lurking underneath. Maybe we really like to be um, in charge or in control. Uh, and so in that moment, we think we know what's best, right? We think we know better than God. That's pride. Acting like we deserve to, to sit on God's throne rather than him. Or whether it's lying or, or gossiping in order to, to make ourselves look better in the eyes of others than, than we deserve. Um, or maybe it's being overly argumentative because we just desperately need to be seen as right or as smart. Um, whatever the sin is, pride is somewhere down there at the root. And of course, it's nothing new, right? It's always been that way from the beginning when our first parents, Adam and Eve, in the Garden of Eden, when they first sinned, right? They rebelled against God's clear command and they acted like they were gods unto themselves. That's pride. And pride isn't just an individual thing. It also it manifests itself in different ways in different cultures, right? Throughout history, uh, human fallen sinful history, in, in various times and cultures, um, it's actually, it's been said that if you look at a culture's, a civilization's architecture, its biggest buildings, it's actually a good test, a good, um, maybe a bellwether of what that culture places its pride in, where its worship, where its idols are, where its pride is. Um, think of the very early on in the scriptures, you know, the story of the Tower of Babel, right? You remember the folks all got together to build this massive tower, was it just because they liked building big buildings? No, it was, if you remember the story, they, they were proud of their ingenuity, the, the new skills that, that, um, that mankind had developed. And so they wanted to build a tower so they could climb up and look at God eye to eye as equals, so to speak. And the story is really funny if you go back and read it because then it says God had to kneel down. It's like he had to squint, you know, with a magnifying glass and like, oh, I see you've made a little tower there. That's cute. Um, but that's the pattern throughout history. Um, and that's just the architecture is just one lens. But so go through, through history, great, great buildings, um, 
the Egyptian pyramids, were centers of worship because the culture was centered around the the cult of the pharaohs and their worship of of the sun god. Or the Aztec pyramids in South America that were dedicated um, to human sacrifices in order to keep the sun rising and the earth fertile. Their whole life revolved around their pride was in their agriculture. Uh, Jump forward to the Middle Ages, uh, European castles that were for kings to display their power and their wealth, right? Those are the massive, impressive Buildings And eventually those castles gave way to, to big cathedrals, which were centers for worship and, and monasteries for learning, which became the first universities. And then jump forward now to the 20th century. Um, in Europe, the, the biggest, most massive government complexes uh, in, in, we think of in Western Europe, places like fascist Italy and communist Russia, those, the, they were government complexes. That's what those big, impressive buildings were. To show off that this is what we prize, this is where our pride is, this is what we think we do best. The state controls everything and makes everything work perfectly. And of course, after two world wars, that um, proved it didn't work out so well. And then here today, what are, what are our biggest buildings, our tallest skyscrapers? All right, they're dedicated to the God of money. They're dedicated to the, the God of commerce, which keeps the world turning. Now, I'm not saying there's anything wrong with big buildings. There's certainly nothing wrong with skyscrapers, obviously. But the point is that pride is a central theme of human history, both on the grand scale and then right down to the individual heart level. And it goes deep. It's in the air that we breathe, um, which, which makes it hard to see. It makes it hard to completely weed it out. In fact, if anyone says they've finally arrived, you know, hey, you know what? I used to struggle with pride, but, you know, praise the Lord, I don't, I don't have to struggle with pride anymore. Um, they're, they're either deceiving themselves or they're lying, and they want you to think they're so great and humble and pious, which is pride. Um, so, so we come to this parable that Jesus is, is teaching. And let me, let me kind of paint the scene of what's going on here um, as, we, as we jump into the story. Because the things that would have been very obvious to Jesus' first hearers are things that maybe are not so obvious to us in a completely different culture 2,000 years later. So these two men, a Pharisee and a tax collector, are going up to the temple to pray or to worship. Um, what they're doing is they're going up to participate in, in what was one of two worship services that were held every day. And so on two occasions, at dawn, and then later, like around three in the afternoon, there was a time for public prayer and worship. The, uh, the people would come and gather in the, in the outer courts. Um, the priest would stand. There are special places for where you know Gentiles had to stay over, way over here. The women were supposed to be over here. If you were purified and you were allowed, you were allowed to be over here if you were um, a man. And there are all these different regulations about how it worked. Then the priest would come out and stand before the people who were gathered there with the altar. And he would ritually sacrifice a lamb. And they had a golden bowl. They would collect the blood very carefully. It would be sprinkled on the altar and then poured around. Um, then at another point in the service, there would be loud trumpets that are played, clashing cymbals. Um, uh, one of the designated priests would, would say or probably sing uh, a set psalm for that uh, service. And then the priest would go in to the inner um, 
It's the outer sanctuary, but it's into the building part of the sanctuary where he would offer incense before God. And he would also tend to the the lamp there and trim the, the lamp. And so it's during that time, while the priest is there out of sight, all the people who are there gathered, that's their time for private prayer. Um, they would have been participating all along with the loud trumpets. They would bow down. But at this point, this is a time for private prayer. And so Jesus gives us a glimpse of what's going on in this worship service with two different people who are there participating. First, we have the Pharisee, and we're going to spend some time looking at him. Um, The Pharisee, if if you don't know, um, he was part of the religious ruling class. He's one of these guys who prides himself on his super spirituality. Um, In verse 11, Jesus says he's standing by himself. Um, Like all good Pharisees, he was standing probably with his other Pharisees, but he was standing apart from the riffraff, from the other folks, because he didn't want to accidentally brush against them and be made ritually unclean. That would have been humiliating for him. And so he's standing off by himself. He doesn't want to run into these notorious sinners, and so he's looking down his nose at these other people. And then he goes on to pray. Not only is his posture kind of aloof, but then you get the words of his prayer, if we could even call it a prayer, right? Jesus tells us that he just lists off the good things that he does. He wants to make sure God sees how righteous he is. So as a Pharisee standing by himself prayed thus, God... I thank you that I'm not like other men, extortioners, unjust adulterers, or even, you know, like this tax collector over here. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. Now, it's easy for us to see um, pride, right, when it's obvious in someone else. We see it in someone else, the brash CEO who brags about the way that he belittles his employees and comes up with little nicknames for him just to make himself feel powerful. Like, it's easy to see pride in someone like that. In, in a prize fighter who boasts loudly about his talents for violence. All right, that's, that's kind of obvious. That's obvious. But, um, and this is what's really important for us to see. The Pharisee is, is basically doing good things. The things that he lists off are all good things to do. He's following God's law, God's holy, perfect law. In fact, he's following God's law so well, he's being more strict on himself than God is himself. um, See, the Pharisees were famous for um, talking about God's law, the Torah, as, as like a garden. And the Pharisees said, you know, we don't want to risk ever even accidentally trampling on this beautiful garden of God's law. And so we're going to build a fence around the law. And so by building up a fence, they would add extra rules, extra regulations to make sure they didn't even get, uh, you know, within arm's length of accidentally trampling on God's law. So they added on extra laws, extra rules on top of extra rules. And so, um, so he says, I fast twice a week. Well, God's law actually only required the Israelites to fast once a year. On the Day of Atonement, there is to be one fast a year. The Pharisees as a group, as this religious group, they said, you know what, we're going to go one better. We're going to fast two days before the Day of Atonement and two days afterward. Because maybe the calendar is not right. We just want to make sure we don't mess this up. And so they had a huge fast. But this guy says, you know what, He, he wants to separate himself from his other Pharisees. 
he wants to get an A+. And he's like, you know what? I'm going to fast twice a week. That's what I'm going to do. And then he tithes, you know, gives a tenth of everything that he has. Um, in Matthew's gospel, we read about how the Pharisees tithe, Jesus says, on their mint, their dill, and their cumin. They tithe on the weeds that grew in their herb garden. That's how serious they were. And in fact, the, the Pharisees didn't just tithe on everything that they had and everything they earned. They also would give a tithe on everything that they purchased, just in case the seller had not already tithed on it, just to be safe. So, so if you go to Publix today and you buy a bag of 10 apples, you need to save one of those apples and bring it back and put it in the offering plate when it comes next week. It was like a self-imposed income tax and sales tax, um, or tithe. So the reason I'm sharing all this, though, is it does take a bit of a, um, a shift in our perspective. If we're going to understand Jesus' story, because if, if you grew up in the church like I did, if you grew up going to Sunday school and hearing about the Pharisees and reading about them in the Gospels, you know these are the bad guys in the story, right? These are the ones who are always opposing Jesus. Jesus is always opposing them and denouncing them, and rightly so. It says at the beginning, Jesus told this parable basically to the Pharisees who were standing around. He's like, hey guys, I'm going to tell you a story about you, you people who trust in yourselves and your righteousness. But that was not the perspective of the people in Jesus' day. In their eyes, the Pharisees were the good guys. These were the, the really pious guys. These were the guys who did Herculean tasks of, of good works that none of the rest of them could even dream of attaining. These Pharisees, you know, they must have been so close to God. That was the mindset of the people who were listening to Jesus' story. Every Jewish mother would have dreamed of her son growing up to be a Pharisee and dreamed of her daughters marrying Pharisees. That was how they thought about them. It was the tax collectors, right? Those are the really bad guys. The tax collectors were Jewish citizens who had agreed to work for the Roman government, the occupying power. They were traitors to their own nation, basically, working for these hated Roman occupiers, these oppressors. And so the tax collectors were, um, were hated. They collected the Roman taxes for the Romans from their fellow Jews. And they were notorious for their dishonesty. So a tax collector would always charge more. That's how they made an income. And so whatever they charge you, you had to pay it. They, this guy was working for the Roman government. And so they would steal from their fellow countrymen. And so if we're retelling this parable today to kind of get our head around it, um, how Jesus' hearers first heard it, we might say something like, um, like this. Mr. Rogers and a crooked politician walk into a church. Right? Automatically we know who's a good guy and who's the bad guy. Um, you know, a sweet elementary school teacher and a mafia boss walk into a church. So, so with that perspective shift in mind, we jump back into the story. Um, and he's standing there, he's, he's so proud of um, how he's not like this tax collector over there, and you can just hear the condescension dripping from his voice, the disgust in his voice. He's filled, he, he's the very definition of spiritual pride. And remember, like we said, he's, he's doing good things. He's not extorting people, 
He's not sleeping around like all these other people around him. He's giving to the poor. He's devoted and disciplined in the study of God's word and prayer and fasting even. I mean, who fasts anymore, right? But this guy fasts twice a week. But his righteousness was actually his problem because it was a source of pride. It was something that he accomplished. So before we're too quick to cast a first stone at this guy, I think we need to ask ourselves in what ways we're proud of our own spirituality. It might look different from from what this Pharisee was doing, but how are we proud of our own spirituality, of our own walk with the Lord? Well, let's, let's take the Pharisee's prayer itself as kind of a template. We'll play Mad Libs here. We can um, just leave, fill in the blank. How would we fill, fill out this prayer? How would you fill this out? How would I fill it out? God, I thank you that I'm not like fill in the blank. God, I thank you that I'm not like, could be something trivial. Maybe, you know, I'm, thank you I'm not like those lazy parents who let their kids eat non-organic junk food. Um, God, thank you that I'm not one of those workaholic dads who loves his career more than his family. God, I thank you that I'm not one of those snowflake social justice warriors. God, I thank you that I'm not one of those MAGA red hat wearing Trump loyalists. We all have a way of looking down our noses at people and kind of saying in the back of our heads, you know, well, at least I'm not like that, right? We, we compare ourselves. And I'm not saying it's, it's, it's wrong to, to make distinctions about things that are right and things that are wrong. But the point is how we internalize that, right? How we compare ourselves and therefore, by putting someone else down, want to put ourselves up. Compare ourselves. And then let's go on and finish this prayer. So then we list off our credentials, right? Instead, I... And how would you fill in the blank? Instead, I... I diligently read food labels and work really hard to make sure my family eats clean. All right? Um, I keep my word. I don't slander people behind their back at work like everyone else does. Um, Lord, I, I work really hard. I pay my bills on time. I read my Bible and pray pretty much every day. Um, I volunteer my time for a lot of charity. I mean, these are all, every single one of those are good things. But you see, we're all Pharisees deep down because like Pharisees, we may be doing really great, wonderful things, but it's our spiritual pride that we're, we're resting in. We're rejoicing in that. We're reminding God and often reminding others of our good works. And that right there is our biggest problem, Jesus says. In fact, Jesus is going to tell us at the very end of the story, it's a deadly, serious problem. Before we get to the end, though, let's look a little bit more quickly at the repentant tax collector. You see, it's, it's night and day, right? His, his posture, his stance, um, his actions and words, it's a stark contrast with the Pharisee's pride. If you go back through the Pharisee's pride, depending on your Bible translation, you can count either four or five I's in there, I statements. I do this, I do that, I don't do that. But Jesus presents this humble tax collector as the model of what true repentance looks like. He's, he's standing far off. He doesn't even feel worthy to be there with, with everybody else. He, he's not even sure that he's supposed to be there. He's afraid that, that someone might notice him and kick him out. 
He wouldn't even lift up his eyes. Literally, it says that he's beating his breast continually. It was the, the posture of prayer. If you were in worship for, uh, for you to stand there with your arms crossed uh, and your head bowed, it was like a, a symbol of a humble servant before his master. And so that's how you would come before worship. But he is beating his chest because he's so overwrought, realizing the depths of his sin. And he says, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. Um, remember I said this is taking place during the blood sacrifice for the people. So when he's asking God to be merciful, it's actually a very specific and, and um, kind of a rarer, rarer word <laughs> um, in, the, in the New Testament. It's a specific word that means to make atonement for, or the big Bible word is to make propitiation for. Propitiation. It means, Lord, take away the guilt that I have on me. Take that off of me and instead give me your favor. Let the, the sacrifice that's happening right now cover my sin and atone for me. To atone. Just like in our English word, it comes from the root at one. He's asking to be reconciled to God because he realizes his sin has set him apart, has separated him. He actually sees his sin for what it is. He's done with covering it up and justifying it to himself and, uh, and to other people. He doesn't hide it. He doesn't minimize it. He looks at himself in the mirror of God's word. He sees his guilt. He realizes all he can do is just just throw himself on God's mercy. A few quick lessons. um, What we can learn from this tax collector. Um, I think, first of all, humility is essential for repentance. That, That might seem obvious, right? Try, try confessing your sin with a heart of pride. It doesn't really work. Um, so if you want to understand true repentance, you have to get humility. And that's what this tax collector shows us so well. And his words aren't very eloquent, they're, but they're profound. God, be merciful to me, a sinner. Technically, actually, literally, he says, be merciful to me, the sinner. In a sense, he sees himself as the sinner. He's like, I don't, he's not interested in all these other people around him. He doesn't know what's going on in their life, what they may have done or not done. But focused on him before God, he says, I'm the sinner here. I'm the sinner. And that's what this tax collector models for us so well. It's the kind of repentance that God's always required in the Old Testament and in the New Testament. In the Old Testament, Ezra chapter 9, he writes, God, I am too ashamed and disgraced to lift up my face before you because our sins are higher than our heads and our guilt reaches to the heavens. David famously prayed in Psalm 51, have mercy on me. I know my transgression. My sin is ever before me. In the New Testament, Paul himself says, Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the foremost. That's the Apostle Paul saying that. He says, I'm the foremost. How can Paul say this? How can the tax collector say, I'm the foremost of sinners? I'm the chiefest of sinners. Didn't they know other people, or at least didn't they read the papers about murderers and other folks who've done other stuff that they certainly hadn't done? The reason that Paul and this tax collector and each one of us need to be able to say, I am the biggest sinner I know. Is because I can't see into anyone else's heart. 
right? We can't look into anyone else's motives. We don't know the extenuating circumstances. Um, we don't know what, was, what exactly is going on um, within them. Because we're not focused on comparing ourselves to other people when we understand humility and repentance as the Bible talks about it. Um, instead, it means we've gone to the hard work of looking within and saying, as far as I can see, I'm the biggest sinner I know. This biblical repentance is really, it's just coming to God with empty and dirty hands, right? Those of you who have had kids, you, you've probably experienced that. <laughs> like, give me something. And you're like, what is on your hands? It's like, why is there jelly all over you? Um, <laughs> but they have nothing to offer you, right? They can't pay you back for whatever you give to your child. And they need to be cleaned up. They don't even have the ability to clean themselves. They don't know how to turn the water on and get in. Um, and so that's, that's really what the gospel is about. It's coming, saying, I have nothing to offer or to contribute to ingratiate myself before you, God. And even my hands are filthy and need to be made clean. So repentance is essential. Uh, or humility is essential for repentance, obviously. Also, repentance has to be an ongoing thing. Of course, it can't just be a one-time thing, right? We think about repentance when, when someone first becomes a Christian. When someone says, you know, God, I'm a sinner. I, I want you to save me. I want to be in your family. I want to be part of your people. Um, that's, that's great. But it has to be an ongoing thing. It's something that we grow and mature in over the years. More and more we see the depths of our sin and how much more we depend on his grace. I've seen it actually graphed out um, on, on like a little chart, which is actually really helpful. Um, this is the part, if we were one of those cool churches that had a whiteboard up here, this is where I would draw, but we're, I'm not going to do that. But you can picture it in your head. Um, picture a graph, and you've got a line going down from left to right, showing more and more as you go through time, you're understanding more and more the depths of your sin, Right? You understand the depths of your need for his grace. But at the same time, you've got another line going up. And that's more and more understanding the greatness of his grace, uh, of his grace that covers that sin. And so um, the way that I I saw this done, a great um, pastor has gone to be with the Lord now, Jack Miller. But he would draw a little cross here. And each, as a cross gets bigger and bigger, the further along you get, the more and more you see the depths of your need, And the greatness of his grace, the bigger the cross of Christ gets, the more central, the more gravitational pull it has on your focus and how you go through your life day to day. Repentance has to be ongoing. Um, And then finally, he says, uh, I think we can see here that we have to repent, not just of, of all the bad things that we do, but we also repent of even our righteousness. We have to repent even of the really good things we do. Remember the Pharisee, there wasn't anything technically really wrong with the things he was doing. They were all perfectly good things. But his problem and ours was that we want to take the credit for it, right? And we act like all those good things are done with, with the purest of motives. But of course, that's not even remotely true. The Old Testament prophet Isaiah says, all of us have become like one who is unclean. All of our righteous acts, he says, not our sins, all of our righteous acts are like filthy rags. 
Again, Paul in the New Testament in Philippians 3, he says, I consider everything to be lost compared to the surpassing greatness of knowing Christ. He says, all of this, it's all lost. I consider them, all the good things I've done, I consider it to be rubbish so that I may gain Christ. Even our best actions have at least a mixture of good and bad motives in there. Selfless motives mixed in with self-serving reasons for doing what we do. We've looked at pride. We've looked at what humble repentance is supposed to look like. Finally, as we close, look at God's, at Jesus' verdict here in the story. It's, it's a shocking verdict to Jesus' hearers. Verse 14. I tell you, this man, talking about the tax collector, went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. It's shocking because, remember, everyone's thinking, even up to this point, they're still thinking, okay, yeah, yeah, the, the, the Pharisee, he's the good guy, he's the pious one, the righteous one, tax collector, boo, we hate those guys. Um, and said, Jesus says, you know what? It's the Pharisee who gets rejected, who goes back home without being justified, without being accepted by God. It's a tax collector, the one who, no matter what he had done, at least he understood repentance, And he ran to the Lord with that repentance. And so this ought to be sobering for us. This story is not a really fun story, Christian. Because Jesus gives us this story as a warning to people like me. People who grew up in the church. People who can speak evangelical ease fluently. (laughs) People who are really comfortable praying out loud in a group. People who have well-thought-out views on a whole host of really thorny, thorny ethical dilemmas. People like me who are pretty diligent and try to be well-practiced in regular habits of giving and Bible study and prayer and, and worship attendance. See, God humbles unlikely people. And he justifies unlikely people. He's telling us it's the despised tax collector who's in. And the revered, pious, religious guy, the Pharisee who's out. And so that's the key. If, unless you see yourself as one of the unlikely people, one of those least likely to be found by God's grace, then I would submit to you, you haven't really understood what the gospel is all about. You notice that this is a verdict that only God himself could pronounce, right? Who is in and who is out? with regard to the kingdom of God? Who does God accept and who does God reject and leave in their own pride and self-sufficiency? He's telling us there, the one who's telling us this story comes as the solution for our pride problem. The one who's telling the story is pointing to himself and saying, look, I'm the only one who can even make this verdict. And in fact, you remember in the story what everyone else at the time knew what was going on during worship. That lamb who's being sacrificed, this Jesus is standing there. And elsewhere he says in the Gospels of John, he, he claims for himself that he is the lamb of God who has come to take away the sin of the world. It's Jesus that we look to, not in pride, but in humility. And that's all it takes, the empty dirty hands coming to him. That's all it takes. Let's pray with me. Lord, um, for those who may be exploring what the gospel is all about, I pray that you would um, 
you would humble and bring conviction of sin and see the beauty and magnitude of the cross. Free, free, free grace, free forgiveness. Lord, for those of us who maybe have been in church our whole lives and are tempted to spiritual pride in a whole host of ways, maybe we hide it better than others and we show it and uh, it comes out in ways that are more socially acceptable um, and not as obviously legalistic. But Lord, we still have pride so deep in our hearts. I do in my heart. We pray that you would humble us. Show us the greatness of your grace. And then feed us with yourself, Lord. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.